0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Reshmaoui, and I'm joined by most of the cast and crew, Alistair Roberts and Matthew Lee Anderson. Uh, And today we are taking up a special subject. We we, want to get into a regular rhythm of just discussing uh, scripture, whether it's difficult scriptures, interesting scriptures, crucial textual points. We're trying to do this every... I know one every three, one every four episodes to to have that rhythm, Uh, which on that note, if you have suggestions or if you have texts that you'd like to have us take up, go ahead and email those in. Um, But today we wanted to take up the question of the text where in Judges of Jephthah's vow. In order to introduce that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Matt Anderson, because Matt had the idea for the show. So, Matt, you said you're reading Augustine on the matter. Why don't you go ahead and tee that up for us?
1: Oh, uh, really? You're going to yeah. make me recount yeah. at, just from the outset. Like, let's just say what Augustine said. Um, I, was, I, I was trying to, like, keep that in my back pocket until the end of the show, Derek. You, you just, can't roll just, out the Augustine at the beginning. You've got to well, coordinate re- re- re-
0: Recount things. recount the story for those who have maybe not uh, engaged the text.
1: Yeah. So, the story... Uh, Jephthah is a a warrior and the the short version is um, he makes an extraordinarily foolish vow, it seems like. Uh, The the vow is that he would sacrifice whoever uh, met him on his way back from battle uh, if he was successful and it's his daughter who comes out. And so uh, he seems to sacrifice his daughter. Uh, he, his daughter asks for time to mourn her. Uh, I think virginity, mm-hmm. and um, but at the end of the two months, it seems like Jephthah goes ahead and sacrifices his daughter, which of course is something that seems to be seems to be forbidden in the rest of the Old Testament. So it he raises counted. this.
0: Judges eleven. For those who want to look it up and actually read this section, so Judges yeah. eleven,
1: and so it's a it's a hard passage on its own. Right? Like it's a really challenging uh, passage to know what to do with. But it's made even more complex uh, as Christians um, because Hebrews eleven thirty two and thirty three, uh, which is a part of the litany of heroes of the faith that the author of Hebrews points to says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the fact that Hebrews lists Jephthah in its litany of heroes of the faith, while Jephthah did this seemingly exceedingly rash vow, raises a ton of questions about how we should understand that. So that's... That's the question that I think we should wrestle with. Augustine has his own way of, of resolving this, which we can talk about. But I'm sure Alistair also has his own way of resolving this, which is probably it's as true. good as Augustine. So I kind of want to hear Alistair first Whoa. to see how closely it maps up we, with Augustine.
0: Are we, are we upgrading it's... Alistair to the A team? <laughs> <laughs> Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm. Okay. Oh, no. Alistair. No, wow, okay. um,
1: Derek. That's good. I, you're That's the one that made it the... terrible.
0: I stole that joke from Oliver Crisp, so.
1: Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm yeah. glad that you owned up to that. Oh,
0: always, always footnote even your jokes, uh, Alistair.
2: I think, just at the outset, I'm not going to answer the questions. I don't oh, have come the on. answer to this, but um, I can make the question a bit tougher. <laughs> we do have the praise of Jephthah in the New Testament, you. but we also have the fact that Jephthah in Judges 11, just as he's about to make his vow, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Yeah, And so it's in his anointing by the spirit of the Lord that he gives out this vow. And then God fulfills his part of the vow. And then if we believe that God and his providence is in control over these small details of life, then it's God who puts out his daughter of out of the house first. God claims his daughter, as it were. And so that makes the question a lot keener than it would be otherwise. Um, So I'll throw it back to you and see what you think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'll ask a question then. Um, I know I've taken Hebrew, I've looked, I think I've looked at this in Hebrew, but I know the Hebrew there is a bit ambiguous, it seems, or I've I've, read that argument in terms of the the kind of sacrifice the kind of vow he's making uh, there's a lot there is question as to whether or not it's an actual sacrifice in the sense of 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 a a burnt offering or something like that a whole burnt offering Uh, the, the the question is whether or not he offered her up in devoted her to the Lord, which would end up being something more like uh, like a Samuel situation where uh, she is devoted to the Lord, kind of like a Nazrite uh, and to, to serve in the temple, or but in this case, she would be one of the attendants to the Levites or something like that, serving around the tabernacle, and so she wouldn 't be able to be married and so she 's mourning her virginity because she 's mourning the fact that she will not produce heirs for her father 's line, and so there 's that line of interpretation where it 's still you know, obviously, it just sounds way more humane. It sounds way more like, okay, well, we're not into human sacrifice in Scripture for the most part. Um, I, I'm, cu- you know, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I will seed. I will cede authority on that or expertise on that. Uh, what, what do you make of that solution, Alistair? It's a Matthew? later solution.
2: It's one that we don't really hear um, in the first thousand years of the Church. I don't think. Um, But yet I think it has some merit to it. When you think about sacrifices more generally in Scripture, there are ways in which human beings can be made part of the sacrificial system, not just as offerers, but also to some extent as offerings. You can think about the Levites, the way that they are presented before God. Um, That might be one example. Um, The way that Isaac is sacrificed by... Abraham. We often think God just stops the sacrifice, but there's a sense in which the sacrifice goes ahead in a different form um, that Isaac is still dedicated to the Lord in a sacrificial sense. It's just he's not killed on the altar. And here, there is no condemnation of Jephthah for what he has done. It just stands as a statement of what happened. Um, And he's someone who's been anointed by. Yahweh, he's someone who's been um, given the victory in the battle that he made the vow concerning, and he's later praised for his faith. So there seem to be textual reasons to lean towards a reading of that particular vow, which is such a defining feature of his life, as one that is not necessarily an evil action. Um, The question then is, why is this a later interpretation? Why don't we find this earlier on in the tradition? And then um, how does this flesh out in terms of a broader theory of sacrifice? And then why would God bring out his daughter first?
0: Well, and there's also the other irony. that He's fighting the Ammonites who were like Molech worshippers. And God gives a victory over the Molech worshippers who he condemns multiple times in the Torah and all over the place for that particular form of worship. And so again... By the spirit of God and, and and part of what judges is depicting is the debauched degeneration of Israel and the way they' chase after foreign gods the way they make their vows hastily they break them all these kinds of things and so um, that really does seem to put pressure against the idea that Jephthah actually sacrifices her in the in the uh, in the more technical sense um, otherwise it, it just seems so radical, uh, a juxtaposition there in the text. So, Matt, you've been quiet. Any any thoughts?
1: No, I think, I mean, what Alice was saying about it being a later interpretation is right. Um, I went and did some looking uh, because this is not Augustine's inter- interpretation. Augustine thinks that the sacrifice seems to think, inasmuch as he addresses the question that the sacrifice happens. He, he doesn't query whether or not um Jephthah fulfilled his vow um the uh I suspect I won't lie I suspect that some of the fact that it's a later interpretation has much to do with emerging Mariology so there's a way in which the Mm. medievals could read this as a um a Marian sort of passage um the uh, Jephthah's daughter is in one sense, a kind of Christological figure. Uh, She is sacrificed on uh, in order to fulfill this covenant um, or this vow that uh, Jephthah had made. And the fact that she mourns for her virginity and seems to be lifted up into like permanent celibacy as a result of this vow has just a ton of resonance with a society or, or an ecclesiology that would have embraced monasticism and would have embraced vows uh, and vowed celibacy, yeah. especially uh, along Mariological or uh, lines. So that's one plausible explanation for why it would come later rather than earlier. There were other sort of doctrinal or ecclesiastical pressures that would be make that uh, come to the surface, but that doesn't quite work because it's actually, my understanding is as well, uh, Jewish commenters don't really start floating that thesis in full until that much later. Um, So I I think that is one of the oddest things about the history of interpretation of this text, that it is just a late interpretation.
0: People, people just kind of rolled with that for, for, for really it seems for a really long time like there's a lot of commentary we don't have but still
2: I think that is a key point we do not have a lot of the commentary that would answer the question of how old is this sort of reading other things I would note it about I would note about it is the way it's playing upon broader themes within scripture so she comes out to meet him with playing tambourines it's something very reminiscent of Miriam coming out after the victory of over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. It's set up for this great victory celebration, but all seems to go wrong. Then there's the fact that the doors of the house represent something. The doors of the house are associated with the Passover. They're associated with the womb. And when we have the announcement of birth in Scripture, it often happens when someone is in the doorway of the house. And that announcement of birth and death in the doorway is also associated with the opening of the womb by the firstborn in um, Exodus chapter 13 and elsewhere. And so she's representing the whole of the house as she comes out of the house as the firstborn. And Jephthah's dedication of the first person or thing to come from his house is a significant dedication of his entire house. Now, why would Jephthah be trying to do that in the first place? He's grown up as one who is rejected by his people because he's born of a prostitute. He's someone who's an outsider, but yet he becomes ahead of the people um, as a result of his military leadership. And now he wants to dedicate his house to the Lord and to become a sort of dynasty. And the fact that God brings out his only daughter is a sort of scuppering of all his hopes to form a dynasty that his house is dedicated, but it's dedicated in a way that frustrates all his plans to form a lasting line.
0: And the the other, the other thing that might be at work is that there are, aren't there, aren't there procedures for, aren't there procedures for redeeming, uh, redeeming folks who have been maybe offered in this way in, in Torah, as well as, as well as, you know, strictures against what to do in case of a foolish vow. Although I think that's more, there's patriarchal, like, break, break points in scripture about that. Like, so if you're, I think Torah says, you know, if your daughter makes a foolish vow, you can, you can break that without your consent, that sort of thing. Uh, but but it, it, you just think there are possible structures um, that would have prevented him had he known, in a sense. Again, this is, this is, again, in a narrative that has the breakdown of law and a knowledge of scripture in the society. So that's that's part of the context here. Um yes, it is important
2: to consider that this is all played out against the backdrop of a, a nation where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. So we shouldn't just presume that he's a righteous man doing everything appropriately. It's the chapter before the story of Samson. It's which then leads into the story of the Levite and his concubine and Micah and these other characters who are clearly um, syncretistic at best um, and engaged in the most wicked and perverse actions at other points. And so even though Samson may be a hero, he's someone who's a very complicated and (laughs) messed up hero in many ways. Um, Likewise with the other characters of the Book of Judges, they're not necessarily straightforwardly heroes. And so we shouldn't just presume that this is a positive thing. Um, the other thing we should notice is when Leviticus 27 talks about devoted things to the Lord, there are senses in which persons can be devoted to destruction and they can't be redeemed. Um, that's yeah. describing the Canaanite cities, other things like that. And so there is some basis for those who would say that she was actually sacrificed. Yeah. I don't I don't think that she was actually put to death. I think that she was probably dedicated to the service of the tabernacle or the growing temple complex. We see the tabernacle described as a temple at the beginning of 1 Samuel, even though it's still a, tam- a tabernacle. Um, and you do see at that point that there were female assistants at the tabernacle um, being abused by Hophni and Phineas. So right. there is this order there where you might... Have someone who's dedicated to the service of the Lord, like Anna would be later on in Scripture. And why does she bewail her virginity? Um, that's another thing that gives some weight to the revisionist or the the newer reading.
0: Right. And it's not just bewailing the fact that I'm going to die a virgin, but like yep. the virginity itself, death—not death, death itself—that's um, that seems significant, Matt.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, she does bewail her virginity. I mean, the the verses 39 and 40 read, and at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never Mm -hmm. known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year, which if you just take that, there's, and she's dedicated to sort of temple service, emerging service within the emerging temple complex. Then it raises a further question about why the daughters of Israel would go and lament uh, the daughter in this particular way versus if she had been uh, actually offered up as a, as a sacrifice to the Lord in, in the way that she was killed. Um, so I like the, the early reading has some real purchase yeah. It seems to me.
0: And he does he does say sacrifice as a burnt offering. I was looking at it again. He he does go that far, it seems, in his initial utterance. And so um yeah, that's He's clearly
2: The yeah. other thing to, the other thing to notice is that there's a translation issue in that final verse. So um there would be for instance Young's literal translation has from time to time the daughters of Israel go to talk to the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite four days in a year so it'd be similar to the way that um Hannah dedicates Samuel to the service of the temple but yet we'll still go to visit him every year or so and bring him a gift
0: hmm. that's okay i not not known that yeah that's Gotta good go that's helpful actually read that thing um so that brings us back around then to the question of Hebrews it was significant like like you noted earlier I mean the list in Hebrews isn't, isn't sterling, right? That, you know, in terms of, in terms of our heroes, um, Samson is is pretty motley character and his his best claim to fame is just being a brawler in the right direction, right? Like the, you know, this guy wanted to kill and brawl and beat. And so, okay, we dropped him. We dropped him on the Philistines. We dropped him against Israel's enemies, but this was not like a righteous man uh, in, in most, of the way that we tend to think of righteous men or, or righteous women in scripture. And so the, 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 hall of the hall of faith, so to speak, uh, in, in Hebrews 11, it's talking about acts of fo- folks who demonstrated great faith in maybe key moments. You know, he, he demonstrated faith in that final moment of, of, of saying, Lord, give me, give me that last strength so I can, so I can avenge my enemy <laughs> even that even even Samson's prayer uh it demonstrates faith it does rec- it's like the recognition of lord you don't have to give me my strength you're the source of my strength it is a, it is a it is a put it this way it's a very baby christian <laughs> kind of prayer for strength and at the same time it is looking in faith to god and that's what he's commended for. That seems to be what he's commended for because a lot of his earlier victories are pretty just petty vengeance. Uh, that's the only one that seems to have kind of a faith root in it. And so if Samson can be commended and seen as a hero of the faith there, well then you've got Jephthah's very tentative and flawed theologically faith thinking that he has to buy God off of the human sacrifice possibly uh, how he's approaching that. Now I'm curious what, Matt, I'm curious what Augustine said at this point, now that we've kind of been sitting in the muddle for a while. Um, what, is, what does our boy say?
1: <laughs> what does he say? I mean, he spends a lot of his time wondering whether the vow was commanded by God and whether that would make it licit or not. He has a discussion in... Book one, maybe, of City of God that he returns to in certain ways about suicides and whether or not uh, someone who would receive a direct command from God to commit suicide would be authorized to do that. So one of his central questions is, is Jephthah commanded by God to enact this vow? And would that, in fact, make it licit? Um, But he, the more interesting side of things, I think, is his Christological reading of Jephthah. Um, Jephthah turns into a type of Christ who, um, you know, he was scorned by his brothers because, as Alistair had mentioned, um, because he was born of a prostitute. Uh, Augustine doesn't mention the rumors that Jesus might have been born by a prostitute, which seemed to be present in the new Testament, uh, uh, allusions to the, that sort of slander. Um, but you can see him sort of being open to that type of possibility. Um, and, uh, the, you know, he makes this vow and he doesn't know what he's, going to offer up as a burnt sacrifice, Like that's one of the things that he lands on the most. He's really surprised that it's his daughter. Um, he's really dismayed that it's his daughter, which uh, from Augustine's standpoint indicates that he was maybe actually thinking about his wife. And um, uh, so his daughter ends up satisfying all of the Christological resonance because she's, a sort of image of his wife, who's also a virgin, like the church, in one way, and so the um, the fulfillment of the vow, uh, uh, Jephthah is, is is in one sense um, made okay on Jephthah's part by the willingness of his daughter to do this thing. So he he really like stresses that um, Jephthah thinks that. The sacrifice will be received well because his daughter uh, um, accepts it and acknowledges it and in and in the same way the you know the church is sort of uh, co-participant in um, the kind of redemptive work of God by being offered up as a sacrifice such that all this becomes a kind of metaphor for the resurrection. That's where what Augustine does with it. And it's head <laughs> yeah, spinning. It like, it's okay. really fun, right? Um, but it's very much a Christological, ecclesiastical uh, reading of, of this passage yeah. as an explanation for why within the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Old Testament, the, um, the Lord would have this passage, which seems to be so disturbing, It would prefigure and point to a greater sacrifice a greater keeping of a vow and the willingness of uh, the people of god to be offered up to god as a sacrifice um and the sort of happy consummation of all of that in the resurrection
2: and you see those sacrificial themes playing out in stories of the passover and elsewhere that Israel itself is offered to as a sacrifice to God. The firstborn of Israel are set apart during that time of the destruction of the firstborn of Egypt. And so every firstborn, everyone who opens the womb has to be sacrificed to the Lord. Those human beings that are sacrificed can be redeemed, but there's a sense in which they're still set apart. And then later the Levites are taken in exchange for them. But what you have here, I think, is, again, in the story of Samson, there are these themes that may remind you of the story of Christ. In Samson, it's the fact that in his death, he wins a greater victory than at any point during his life. He stretches out his hands and he wins his victory that way, brings down um, the temple just as Christ tears the temple in curtain in two and opens it up, Um These other themes that you find within the story of Samson are played out in the story of Christ. Likewise, David's retreat from Jerusalem is played out again in the coup of Absalom, played out again in the story of Christ, crossing the book Kidron, going up the Mount of Olives, being ministered to by angels there, the attack of people upon him and then his right-hand man wanting to slay them with the sword and then preventing that. Now, in all of those cases, the original event is one that's deeply admixed with sin and failure and all these other sorts of problems, but yet nonetheless, it's used as something that has typological reference right. to Christ. And within those events, there is faith to be seen, even in one that's quite admixed with um, all sorts of other sentiments and sins and failures.
0: So, So maybe, maybe, maybe there's typological resonances i i see it most partially in in uh in jephthah's own daughter's faith uh you know even more kind of like isaac in in looking father father wears a sacrifice she very she didn't have any questions about that she knows what the sacrifice is and she says hey just give me a bit of time and and so there's 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 a greater faith there than you see in a lot of stories i mean it's confused in certain ways, especially if it's the proper sac if it's the proper sacrifice reading, uh, then that is a, that is wild. But, um, there's still the question of, we have to not let typology, um, smooth out no. the, the, the horror of like the, the event in history, and sometimes typology. Oh well, hey, this this yeah this is a terrible story, but there's a really nice typological reading that I can preach, or I can kind of comfort myself with. And you know, um, and I'm sympathetic to that. I love that. And at the same time, that is still an intense historical happening that we have to reckon with. And so there's that question of like, okay, God providentially seeing the way this was going to typologically point forward to Jesus, all that kind of. Thing, that's fine. But in that situation, what well, what is he up to? in inspiring Jephthah and then seemingly inspiring Jephthah and then letting the daughter come out at just that moment and him knowing that, like, w- what was he doing to Jephthah? What was he doing to the girl? And there's, like, the, I mean, for me, there's this question, I can't remember where I was reading it, but the, but the sense that, um, you know, like you said, Jephthah's trying to maybe create for himself a dy- dynastic line and that sort of thing. And uh, you can kind of see... God throwing up a big stop sign on that, while at the same time not necessarily approving of the sacrifice. Him just saying, like, okay, hey, look look what happened. You can't go that route. And at the same time, Jephthah saying, Okay, well, I guess I gotta go through with this, and that not necessarily being the case with what had to happen, in a sense, you know, coming him coming to a place where he he had another option. He could have like maybe tried to figure out how to, how to um you know, uh, redeem her or recall places in 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 scripture where God doesn't actually like child sacrifice. In a sense, God throwing a rock in his in his in his in the in the path, and him saying, "Okay, I guess I gotta just run into the rock." <laughs> it's like, no, 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 you go around it, but um, but you can't go that way. Uh, so I mean, that's that's part of what I'm wrestling. So I I don't know what. Matt, else what do you got to say about that? But
2: I mean, I agree on the typological dimension. The typology is not supposed to smooth over these problems. Rather, part of the way that typology works is by holding two events alongside each other in their similarities and their differences. And so it's the juxtaposition of events that helps you to see the significance. So you can read the story, for instance, of Sodom and Lot and the threat at the doorway, the meal of unleavened bread being delivered from the city, which comes two people to inspect the city for destruction, all these sorts of themes that remind you of the Passover. But there's an ugly series of twists upon that story in the story of of um, Lot and Sodom that you'll be missing the meaning of that story unless you're seeing how the typology highlights the failure of Lot and the fact that it's... a an abortive deliverance. They're not full he doesn't end up being fully delivered um, right. in the way that Israel was supposed to be. So there is a deliverance, there is an exodus theme, but there's also a negative twist upon that. And if you read through the book of Judges, we should notice this is not the only time there is a fatal movement of a woman outside the doors of a house. Um, we find the same thing later on in the Levite's concubine. And so reading those two accounts alongside each other there are different more negative dimensions that come to the surface and so i think the typology works on not just the relationship between this and christ but the relationship between this and other stories in scripture the story of abraham and isaac most notably um that there is a similar willingness of jephthah's daughter to be sacrificed but this is not something that god imposed more directly upon jephthah God is instrumental in bringing, or God clearly brings him to have to sacrifice his daughter. But that's not quite the same thing as Abraham has, where God, without any initiation of a vow on Abraham's part, called for him to sacrifice his son, and then he went ahead with it, and then God intervened. And so reading those stories alongside each other is important, and the typology will help you to answer some of your questions. But the typology also helps you to see the distinctness of the narratives because this narrative isn't merely related to the story of Christ and the attempt to just draw a direct connection between every event and the story of Christ, I think, short circuits the way the biblical narrative works. Rather, it's something that plays out against a far more complicated backdrop of numerous typological themes at play simultaneously. So you, you hear the story of Abraham, you st- hear the story of the Levite and his concubine, you hear the story of Christ as well, but that is not one that determines all its meaning. Rather, there's a lot going on in this passage that is supposedly is supposed to be troubling, is supposed to be unsettling. And we're supposed to see the more general themes of judges as a time of um, great declension and failure in Israel as something that is coming out in this story too. There is a judgment taking place upon Jephthah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I don't disagree with any of that, so I I think (laughs) it's all right. I know, Whoa. amazing, huh? Uh, no, I, ne- I never disagree with Alistair about the Old Testament, just everything else. Um, fair, fair. I know my limits. I'm not going to go toe-to-toe with Alistair on the nature of typology. Um, come on, Derek. The uh, So when it, when I think, Derek, one of the things that I heard you ask about, uh, or maybe this is just a question that I have that seems similar to what you had said, is about um, whether or not Jephthah, having made the vow, does have exit paths or workarounds, I think you called them, such that he would be able to avoid fulfilling it. Um, yeah. So one possibility is that he makes it in to the Hebrews 11 list in part because he does fulfill his vow. Um, right. Because he, and he fulfills his vow in part because his daughter – is um, willing willing to do that. And so in one sense, his own faith is bound up in his daughter's willingness to do this thing, which is an interesting feature. But right. it might be the case that having made a potentially foolish or extreme vow, the Lord cares about vows so much that he treats them as irreversible. And the willingness of Jephthah to fulfill his foolish vow, even at the cost of his uh, lineage, the cost of potentially his daughter's life is an indication that he is willing to abide by the strictures that the Lord has laid down for the making of vows. Um, and I think that's that's a hard thing, right? That's that. yeah. The question of the irreversibility of vows is, to me, a, a really tough moral problem, what is it that would make this sort of vow irreversible, especially if, Derek, as you proposed, there are, and I'm not sure uh, yeah, there I'm not are sure. I'm places. Trying to, I'm
0: trying to remember I where where tap you could remembered have remembered at this point.
1: Alternate forms of sacrifice <laughs> that would come in here.
0: But just because of the redemption of the firstborn, that sort of thing, at this point you're you're coming up against the the problem of like two a conflict in, in uh, a seeming conflict in the law right if we're dealing with the the irreversibility irreversibility of vows that's in the law we've also got don't sacrifice kids don't don't sacrifice humans uh in the law be like in that form you've got devotion you've got Nazarites. you've got temple uh folks but but so you've got that 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 um that conflict, at which point you have you you're stuck with a question of, of mediating that conflict with that seeming conflict in the law because of a foolish vow. What takes priority, right? Fulfilling the vow of the Lord, and is that the kind of thing that he would want fulfilled, right?
1: If that so, is the tragic, if that is the
0: conflict, right? right? If that is the conflict, I mean, to me, it seems like a conflict at least. Um, although there. Now I had a little split of a side thought in terms of the typology you have the, you have the tragic conflict that seems to point forward to, Hey, well keep, keep my covenant with Israel, make a great nation, bring in the land, be faithful to her, all that sort of thing. And at the same time, Israel breaks the law. How do we, how do I redeem her? How do I still keep my promises? Oh, the sacrifice of a son. Um, <laughs> that 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 seem that seeming conflict is generated and and uh, and culminates in the death and resurrection of the son. But in the particular of that, I, I'm just still I, I'm I'm just still wrestling with uh, what should Jephthah have done?
1: Have done? I mean, well, remember, besides not make the vow. Remember, Derek, this is the podcast where. We talk and get ourselves all confused
0: and never <laughs> never come out of it, so successful show one of our best reviews one of our best reviews so far uh, well, you have a lot of yeah.
2: you have a lot of commentary within the Old Testament within the narratives upon the sacrifice of children, often in very complicated and unsettling ways. Um, I think for instance, if you're reading the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac just by itself, you're misreading that story because that story occurs against the in juxtaposition with the story of Ishmael being sent out and very similar events happening to Ishmael. Ishmael being left under the bush and then the ram being found in the bush and the two kids. It's something that we see later on in the story of Esau and Jacob and then also in the story of Joseph and Judah. Um, These themes are playing within the story. And then later on, you'll see those themes coming up in things like the story of the death of Nadab and Abihu leading into the law concerning the Day of Atonement. But then you'll get to a place like 2 Kings chapter 4, and you have the Shunammite woman who's given a child in much the same way as Sarah and Abraham. And then the question is, when that child dies, what happens? What would have happened if Sarah had seen Abraham coming back without Isaac by his side, how would she have reacted? She had been given a child by God. And this is a question the text raises, but it doesn't answer in Genesis. But later on, when you get to 2 Kings chapter 4, you do find an answer. And so you have all these themes playing out, literary callbacks to the story of Sarah and Abraham and Isaac. And she goes towards the mountain. She sees it afar off all these sorts of themes. And then she calls for God to give her child back and Elisha lies upon the child and the child is brought back to life. So I think in similar ways, we're supposed to read this story against the backdrop of those other narratives. And it will be a way that we see that there is a form of child sacrifice that occurs. That it isn't as if God says to Abraham, sacrifice your son, no, just kidding. Um, he really wants Abraham to sacrifice his son. And there's a sense in which it's also God expressing his power to make such a request. God is in the position as the Lord of all life that he can call for us to give our children. And that is something we'd find hard to process because we think we are the ones that they are our children and they're also their own person's. And that is a deeper front to us that God might actually require that. But God actually gave them life in the first place. And so even though parents may be involved, there's something that God has as a claim that's far greater. And I think that's playing out in these stories. God will not actually press that claim in quite the same way as Abraham fears. But yet he still claims their children.
1: Yeah, we should probably just do a book club now on John Levinson's The Death and Resurrection of the (laughs) Beloved Son, uh, which Alistair has given a wonderful pricey for uh, there. So future attractions for Mere Fidelity.
0: Yeah. On that note, we do have to wrap it up. We didn't conclude it, but I think we we got into some good issues here. But if you've made it through all this, thank you for listening once again. And thank you, especially if you're a Patreon subscriber. Uh, we, we really appreciate your support and, and, uh, and, and uh, belief in what we're doing on the show. Helps keep the lights on. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and join that team, you can go to our show notes at mereorthodoxy.com and, uh, and get info on the show, everything else. Uh, but for now, thank you for listening. This has been Mere Fidelity.